Let's pray before we read uh, God's word this morning. Our Lord and our God, we are thankful that you are God and that you are redeeming God, as we just sang. That you are everlasting, that you are faithful, and that you are God of truth. We pray that you would take your truth and that you would sow it in our hearts and minds this morning. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. This is the holy and errant word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was thinking at the outset this morning, we got to get this out of the way, uh, is this truth that Jesus asserts that all of you in this room are more important than sheep, each of you. Uh, We think of something like that and think, well, that seems a little nonsensical. Of course, we would all agree with that, that we're more important than sheep, and we Probably smile a little within as he says that to the Pharisees. But maybe it's not so silly to think about uh, because all of us in this room, we will swing. We are 
interesting as people, we will in one moment be filled with so much pride that we will think this world can't turn without us. And then in the next moment, uh, we will be so low that we will think that maybe we don't matter to anybody in this world, that if we died tomorrow, very few would recognize and very few would think about it. And so we count things as significant that maybe aren't really quite as significant as we think. It's the barber who we go to that remembers our name, or the professor that is willing to stay after class to speak to us, or it is that physician, that doctor that is the odd one that will actually call us at home. We count all of that as special because they make us feel special, like we're important, like we matter. In a world filled with seven and a half billion people, we often ruminate on, am I just an anonymous person, anonymous person? Do I actually really matter? This is an interesting passage. We have Jesus brushing up against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Judaism, and the contrast could not be greater for them. The people of Israel are not their concern. For Jesus, the individual is the concern. And I would guess by observation of my own Christian life and by observation of pastoring after 15 plus years that one of the greatest errors we make with regards to our understanding of Christ is that we feel or that we fail to comprehend how compassionate He is towards us, how much He is actually concerned with each of us. Remember how that passage ended last week in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says to the disciples and to the people around, He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And, and most read that passage and they think, well, of course, Jesus says that He'll give rest. He's speaking about eternal life, that in the life to come we will finally have rest. And, and that's true. But that's not all that Jesus is speaking of. We, we tend to think that we'll have rest there, but here it will be very much a burden life. It will be very much a life that uh, feels very encumbered week in and week out, that we are very heavy laden and weighed down. And there is some truth to that. There is trials in this life and there is work to be done. As Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He gives us a yoke. So there is work for you and I to do in the kingdom. It's, it's not as if we don't have a yoke. It's not as if we don't have a burden. But it's a yoke marked by compassion. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Why? Because He cares for His people. Not just in the future, but in the present. I was just having an evangelistic conversation with somebody this weekend. And in essence, they were saying to me as I was sharing the gospel with them, they said to me, they said, what you really care about is just kind of getting some fire insurance. You just want to escape 
the fires of hell, and that's all you're concerned about with me is that I escaped the fires of hell. And that's all that really matters. And I told them, I'm genuinely concerned about you escaping the fires of hell, but it is much more than that. Having a personal relationship with Christ isn't just about the rest I received then. It's about the rest that there is now. It's about the peace that there is now in the midst of trials. It's about the joy we can have now in the midst of laboring for Him in the difficult things. It's the joy of just walking and delighting in our Savior in this life. Because we have a, a Lord who governs all things. And He's a Lord of compassion that is with us and walks with us through all things. Because He cares for us. We see the opposite from the religious leaders in Jesus' day. These Pharisees, as Jesus will say, love to tie up heavy burdens on people. They, they sit over people and they simply require of them. I want us to see from this text that Jesus, as the Christ of compassion, frees His people from the burden of legalism. That's our first point. That as the Christ of compassion, He frees His people from the burden of legalism. The Pharisees, as we see them in this text, they don't care about the individual. Legalism always leads us to disregard others. And we see that here with them. The, the law mattered to them, and more importantly, their interpretation of the law mattered to them. More to them than the people they burdened with their laws mattered to them. And so they created this heavy, regulated culture of law upon law upon law, and they forced this upon the people. They burdened their conscience with it. And so Jesus and His disciples, they bump up against this on this Sabbath day as they're walking through these fields, and they're grabbing some grain to eat. They're walking through fields. This wouldn't have been uncommon. There weren't roads everywhere like you and I experience roads everywhere here in America and so you would travel across someone's field and it was allowed that as you traveled across someone's field that you could take a little grain and that you would eat it as Jesus' disciples are doing here. Deuteronomy 23, the Lord makes it very clear. He says, quote, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish but you shall not put in any in your bag if you go into your neighbor's standing grain like this. You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in Jewish culture, this was not stealing. But this isn't what the Pharisees are concerned about. Rather, their concern was that they were working. It was the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day, you are not to work. Jews, these Pharisees are looking at Jesus' disciples who were clearly not working. They weren't reaping. They weren't harvesting. But they were grabbing some of the grain. And aha, say the Pharisees, you're, you're taking the grain and you're rubbing it in your hands to get the chaff off the grain. And that's work. And you're abusing the Sabbath day. 
Let's see if we can understand a little bit of the Pharisees' mindset here, why this something that seems so small would be so large in their eyes. When the Pharisees looked at the Old Testament, they saw throughout the Old Testament that God had said to his people that you are to be holy as I am holy. And then he gave his people a law, a law by which they were to live their lives and they were to be holy as he was holy. They also saw in the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews kept turning away from holiness, that they would pursue idolatry, that they would pursue sin, that they would worship false gods. And they saw that as a result, God disciplined his people by having other nations come in and conquer them. And these nations would even carry off some of the Jews. And so in the Pharisees' mind, it is this. It is, well, we weren't holy, and so God disciplined us. So to return God's favor, what must we do? We must be holy. We must earn his favor to get his favor back, and so they sought to earn God's favor. They're aimed at complete and total obedience to the law of God. And they sought to achieve it by regulating observance to the law of God by making all kinds of additional laws. The Ten Commandments said that you shall honor the Sabbath day, and you shall keep it holy and do no work on it. But how do you decide what is actually work on the Sabbath day? Well, here were the Pharisees to the rescue with all of their additional laws to let you know what was work and what wasn't. They had 39 categories for what is not allowed on the Sabbath day. As Calvin once said, he said, one could scarcely move a finger without making the conscience to tremble on the Sabbath day. For example, one could not start a fire or cause anything to burn, so the Jews would create a fire on the previous day that was hot enough and burned bright enough that it would continue all through the Sabbath day. One couldn't boil water to cook food because cooking food was work, so they would prepare their meals the day ahead. Now, they could heat their food up with boiling water, but they had to have it at a place where the food was already cooked so that when they were heating it up, it wasn't actually cooking because that would be work. One couldn't tie a permanent knot, but one could tie a knot, a bow in the hair, or in modern Orthodox Judaism, you can tie your shoelaces because it's not a permanent knot. You couldn't use animals on the Sabbath day because they were afraid that you might be prone to grab a switch off of a tree and start hitting your animal on its backside with the switch, and that would be work. A person wasn't allowed to carry anything by their laws. That was work, and so you couldn't carry anything but the clothes that were already on you. I was reading an Orthodox a Jewish site this week to see how they applied some of these things today, and they carry this literature forward from Jesus' time period, and, but they had to make some adjustments. So here is, quote, they stated in their literature, even such trivial things as a key or a handkerchief must be left at home. Certainly pocketbooks, purses, wallets, and keychains may not be carried. The only thing one may carry outdoors are things that are actually worn. Legislating everything. You couldn't take a bath because the fear was that if you took a bath, some of the water might spill upon the ground, and then you would have to clean that water up 
in your house, and that would be work. Men were told that as they walked on the Sabbath day, they had to walk differently than they walked throughout the week. You couldn't leap over a brook, because that's work. You couldn't take too long as strides, because that was work. In fact, they were so concerned that they said, you know what, you can't really travel from your home because traveling is a form of work. So you can only go 3,000 feet away from your home. But there was an exception. If you had food that was 3,000 feet away from your home, that was an extension of your home so you could go another 3,000 feet. But nothing beyond that. Just rule upon rule. A burden, a heavy burden. I know of a man in a, another congregation that approached his pastor one day. They were having breakfast together, and that man, at the very beginning of the breakfast conversation, said to his pastor, he said, I will never be able to respect you as my pastor. That's a way to begin a breakfast conversation. And the pastor inquired as to why. And the man said, because a few weeks ago, I noticed that you drove for three hours on Sunday afternoon, on the Sabbath afternoon. And the pastor replied that, listen, Saturday's a work day, and there really is no Friday night for pastor, and if you're going to get away for one night to visit family, it's Sunday night that you got to go, because... Monday's the day off, and he was traveling three hours away to see his family. And the man said, yes, and I will never respect you because you broke the Sabbath. This pastor noticed that this same man, for years, and continued to travel about an hour and a half away to see his own family, extended family on Sunday afternoon worship with them on Sunday evenings. Legalism always seeks to control God and to control others. That's what the Pharisees are doing, and Jesus, in His compassion, frees His people from the burden of legalism. He confronts the Pharisees, ignorant, uncaring, uncompassionate legalism. He says to them twice, he says, have you not read? And of course, they've read the Scriptures. But in the midst of all of their learning, all of their legislating morality, they did not understand the Scriptures. And contrived holiness according to our own standard is no holiness according to God's standard. And Jesus will have nothing to do with it. And so Jesus shows them their ignorance. He approaches the subject as a Jewish rabbi would have approached the subject. He, he takes two different accounts from the Bible, from the Hebrew Old Testament, two things that seem to be contradictory in nature, and he presents them to these Pharisees so that a conclusion can be drawn. He says, look, David ate the bread, but David wasn't allowed by law to eat of the bread. That was only for the priests that were in the tabernacle. He wasn't allowed to do this. Priests work on the Sabbath day when no one is to work on the Sabbath day. So what do you do with this, Pharisees? 
It's interesting that Jesus gives no commentary on whether David was right in eating that bread of the presence that only the, the priests were to eat. That isn't his concern. Rather, what Jesus is doing is questioning the Pharisees' entire approach to the law. They missed the reason. They understood the letter, but not the spirit. And so he quotes from Hosea 6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That is, you are abiding by the ceremonial, but you forsake the greater law of Pharisees. Micah, in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, he makes this crystal clear. He says this, he says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Didn't God command that these sacrifices be made, that calves be offered, that oil be offered? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He is told, O oh man, what is good? What does, the, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The hypocrisy of these Pharisees is shown in that they give themselves liberty in the things that matter most while being narrow in ceremonial matters. And legalism always does that. It was given in compassion for his people. Jesus makes a bold claim here. He makes a claim that he is greater than the temple. He makes an even greater claim that he is the son of man who is Lord of the Sabbath. He makes his claim that he's greater than David, a fugitive king like him, who these Pharisees are opposing, even as Saul opposed David. And if David could do such things, then surely Christ can as well. It's a bold claim. Something greater than the temple is here. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You Pharisees think you will regulate people with your rules about the temple and about the Sabbath. Well, let me tell you, I am greater even than the temple, and I am greater even than the Sabbath. They are both there by my appointment. By claiming that he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming to be God. So he just might know something about it. It's his decree. It's his establishment, and he didn't give the law of the Sabbath so that legalists could tie up heavy burdens upon themselves and upon others. No, it was given in compassion for his people. And that's our second point. The Sabbath law was given by a compassionate God for the good of our souls and our bodies and for one another. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. I think we've lost much of the significance of the Sabbath day in our day and age, uh, and we are at a loss because of it. We've, we've lost the joy and we've lost the blessing of it. It's a, it's a compassionate gift from Christ to us, for our bodies, for our souls, for one another. It was a compassionate act of God for our souls. 
I think the Sabbath day was given so that we might have one day in seven where we can gather together unencumbered with God's people before God to worship Him. So we can just sit in His presence and just delight in Him. So that we wouldn't mandate to one another to work on this day. So that we would have the freedom to gather together on this day. So that our souls could experience rest on this day. The Christian lives their life from Sabbath to Sabbath, from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. It's the beginning of our week. It's the day on which the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And it reminds us that grace precedes our work. We gather together with one another and with God and have our souls refreshed. Sabbath was also given for the good of our bodies. I think without the protective boundaries of the Sabbath in our week, we would work one another to death. And God knew that even in creation. And so in creation, He rests. He rests on the seventh day so that we would know that we are to give one another rest. It is, as Donald McLeod once called it, the first piece of employee protection legislation. It's a gift to stop us from killing each other bodily. So don't treat it as a small thing when a baseball game is scheduled and you think, well, it just affects the kids. Or that graduation ceremony is on the Lord's Day. No, it just affects the organizers or a retail store. It only affects the hourly workers. And all of a sudden, our entire society has bowed the knee to a seven-day work week. And we're killing each other. And it has an effect upon our health and our joy and our rest and our peace. And it drives us to valuing commerce and accomplishment and recreation above everything else. And that will take an incredible toll. The Sabbath was given by God out of compassion for our finite bodies. They need rest. They need time not to do homework. They need time not to mow the grass. They need time not to do laundry. They need time not to stand on the factory floor. They need time not to do. So he gave it to us in compassion. Can I encourage you that this is one of the reasons that I would encourage not legislate, not legalists, but encourage you to come back to worship on Sunday evening. I didn't understand the benefit of it until I started doing it here at URC. It's not always easy to get here Sunday evening, but I'm always, I always leave glad that I've come because it makes the entire day a day of worship. Morning and evening, bookending it with worship. It's just too easy to come for two or three hours, then go home and eat lunch and take a nap, and then go on with the day, and you get to the end of the day, and you realize it wasn't a day of worship. It was a two or three hours of worship. The Sabbath day has been given to you and I to be a day of worship, devoted to worship, 
But I've also found that when I didn't come to the evening service that I was pulled in to work around the house or more often the work that I was going to be doing that week. It may be that I wasn't sitting down to answer emails or return phone calls or go and visit people, but, but my mind was there. I'm starting to think about it. And all of a sudden, Monday has encroached upon Sunday. But when you're returning back Sunday evening, it's bookending the day. Helps you not to start thinking about Monday until you get home. God gave us the Sabbath day out of compassion for our souls and our bodies. He also gave it so we might have time to show compassion to one another. And oh, how the Pharisees missed this. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they ask in verse 10. And what a question. Jesus answers them, and he says this. He says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Yes, of them. And it angers Jesus that they would nullify compassion for others in the name of observing the law when it was given in compassion. So quick is sinful man to heap burdens upon other people. And so slow are we to remove burdens from other people. And so third, the Christ of compassion confronts our hardness of heart. Matthew details that in this account of the man with the withered hand. Now Mark gives the same account in chapter 3 of his gospel. And it's very interesting how Mark speaks about it. Because he says there that when Jesus spoke these words, quote, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. I was thinking about this this week. You know, we don't find Jesus as angry as we would think we would find him in the Scriptures as often as I would think we would find him. He is holy God in the midst of an unholy people. He is the creator of all things, and he's in the midst of his rebellious creation. And yet we find him only on occasion angry. And yet every single time that he is angry in the Gospels, there is an interesting thread. In Mark 10, the disciples try to keep the children from Jesus. And Mark says that Jesus was indignant. He was angry with the disciples. Why? Because they were barring children from coming and receiving his blessing. Maybe the most famous account is Mark 11. We find that, that famous scene where Jesus goes into the temple and there are money changers in the temple. They are there in the court of the Gentiles and they are selling wares. And Jesus goes in with a cord and he begins to beat them and drive them out of the temple. He's angry. Why? Because that was where the Gentiles, where the nations were to come and to have access to God, to worship Him. And they were more driven by their desire for commerce, their desire for wealth, than they did have compassion for these Gentiles, for these outsiders. Jesus He's no compassion for the smallest, no compassion for the distant, and here no compassion for the afflicted. This is what raises Jesus' ire, hardness of heart towards those created in His image. It makes Him angry. 
D. Warfield said this, he said, anger always has pain at its root. It is a reaction of the soul against what gives it discomfort. And the hardness of the Jew's heart vividly realized hurt Jesus. Interesting thought, hurt Jesus. And his anger rose in repulsion of the cause of his pain. This man with a with a withered hand is created in his image, is created in his likeness for his glory. How dare you, Pharisees, not look upon him with compassion. And you would look upon a sheep that has fallen in a pit that is yours with compassion. The question he asks them in verse 11 is not innocent. It's it's an accusation. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? You're of more value than a sheep. If each of us, I think, simply understood a, a tenth how much Christ values us, we would never have a despairing thought. And if each of us but understood a tenth of how much Christ values every person around us, there'd be no refuge for bitterness, for hate, for envy, for gossip, for slander, for ridicule in the darkest corners of our hearts. There be but compassion and love. We want our inclination in every moment with each person to be compassion and love. That that's the inclination. That's something to grow in. That's something to labor after. That's something to pray for. Help me to see people as you see them, Lord Jesus. It was about a, a year into church planting, uh, and I was every day out in the community trying to meet people, evangelize, uh, get to know people, share the gospel to plant a church. And the people that I was seeking to find were not the people I was finding. And I remember one day I was driving from a counseling session with a man who had just abused his wife and was facing the ramifications and fallout of that. I was on my way to meet with a man that had neglected his three children and seeking counseling because of the fallout of that. And on the way, I was on the phone between those two appointments counseling a woman that had a husband that was a drug addict and an alcoholic that I had been ministering to for months. And I hung up the phone, and to my absolute shame, I heard come out of my mouth, Lord, just give me some normal people to minister to. It's 
So much foolishness there. As if these people weren't normal, as if I was somehow better. As if there weren't people that Jesus looked at with compassion, each single one of them. The moment the words came out of my mouth, I oh, just pulled over to the side of the road and I was in tears. Uh, thinking about Matthew 15 there where what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and my heart was not in a good place. It was a hard heart. I was supposedly serving the Lord in ministry but my heart was hard towards people and that showed it was hard towards God. The Pharisees with all of their feigned holiness before God show their utter hypocrisy by how they position themselves over others that they were supposedly ministering to. I think back and I think I was so immature in the ministry, but more importantly, it showed me that I was immature in Christ. Because all, all people are broken and hurting and battered. There is not a single person in this room that is not hurting. There's not a one. And that is why it is so crucial that we have a Christ of compassion. Finally, Matthew shows us that the Christ of compassion always considers our weakness. He quotes from Isaiah 42. That God's chosen servant, Jesus, is the one who brings justice. Notice it's a fight, he says, until he brings justice to victory. It's a fight against the kingdom of darkness. And as he does so, he wages war on our behalf. And he is conquering our foes. And he is conquering his foes. And he is laying them beneath our feet for his glory and for our good. And as he does so, he does it as one who is just as gentle with his people as he is ruthless with his and our enemies. The Pharisees were hard on the people of God. Jesus is gentle with them. I wonder if that's how you see Jesus with you. Matthew gives the longest Old Testament quote he gives in his entire book. Think how many times Matthew quotes the Old Testament and this is his longest quotation from the Old Testament. Why? Because he wants you to see the nature of your Savior. And what he is pointing out about the nature of your Savior is that he is gentle with his people. He is kind with his people. He is long-suffering with his people. He treats with tenderness the bruised and the beaten, the smoldering and the flickering. As Richard Sibbs wrote in his classic work, The Bruised Reed, he said, Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. He's greater than the temple. You would go to the temple to offer your sacrifices. He is greater than the temple. He would observe the Sabbath day to find some kind of rest with God. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one in whom you find rest in. He's the one. He is this good, gentle shepherd that is tender with his people, compassionate towards them. 
but he wants his people to be compassionate with those around them. He says to you and I, he says, but come, and I will give you rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Christ of all compassion. I pray you know him as such. Lord Jesus, we do exalt you this morning. That you are slow to anger and you are abounding in steadfast love. We're thankful that you are bringing justice so the enemies of yours and the enemies of ours will not escape justice. And yet you are gentle, you are long-suffering, you are compassionate towards your people. Ah, may we revel in it. We find great solace in it. And may we labor from that compassion and that love towards those around us in the body of Christ and to those that are outside that need to hear the good news that there is such a gentle Savior. We exalt you, we give you glory. Give us rest, we pray in you today. In Christ's name, amen.